We have our annual picnic coming up a week from uh, Saturday on the 16th, so uh, be prepared for that. And it looks like we could have a really good group go out there, play pickleball, some other games, and um, have a lot of fun, eat some good food. There's a lot of good-looking stuff signed up on the list, so it'll be a great, great time. I think that's the only announcement, right? All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we pray, just a word of praise. I talked to Brett Nasworth. There actually, we text back and forth about every other day, and he is doing pretty well. Uh, he's getting back. He started yesterday back to somewhat normal schedule, like everyone who's had COVID, especially a tough go like he has. It doesn't have its normal stamina and strength, and he has fatigue and those things, but he is uh, uh, back at it. So he's uh, very grateful for that and thankful for all of our prayers so we can um, rejoice in that. And also there's a number of other people who are associated with West Houston Bible Church and that they are uh, struggling with recovery from COVID, a couple that are going through some difficult times, and so we need to keep continue to keep them in our prayers. Before we, before we get started, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the, with the Lord and ready to focus on Him and on His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer in order to uh, confess sin if necessary, be prepared, spiritually prepared for a time of study, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the creator of all things, and Father, you are our redeemer. And for that, we give thanks to you and praise your name because you alone are are God. And Father, we thank you that we can come before your throne of grace because of the completed work of Jesus Christ, our high priest on the cross. And on that basis, we can come to you directly anytime, and it doesn't matter who we are, where we are, As long as we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have immediate access to your throne of grace. Father, we're so thankful for reports that we've heard from several who have had COVID. Some have not had bad cases, but others who have had uh, really severe cases for a long time, such as Brett, have recovered and are uh, working at getting back to a normal schedule despite the fatigue and other things. And Father, we do know that there are 
uh, two or three families that are still struggling with one or two family members who are just having a tough time uh, recovering. And we pray for them and their recovery, for their uh, strength of those who are the caregivers, and that you would just give them a real stability, peace of mind as they rest and trust in you. And Father, as we come together to study your word tonight, may we be encouraged and strengthened knowing that it is the infallible, inerrant word breathed out by you through the Holy Spirit to the writers of Scripture, guaranteeing their accuracy, guaranteeing their truthfulness and veracity, and that we can uh, rely on them with every ounce of our being. And we pray that we might be encouraged tonight in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study in uh, Judges, and we're in chapter 4 now, coming up on the third actual judge, that is Deborah. And we are going to be looking at the oppressor tonight, who is um, Yabin, or Yavin actually, who is the king of Hatzor. And I called this lesson Hatzor again. Because under Joshua, in Joshua chapter 11, uh, Hatzor was completely destroyed and everyone in it was uh, put to the sword and was killed. And now some 150 plus years later, uh, it's back and it's an, a problem again for Israel. And I know that you've probably never had this experience, but there's a few Christians who've had these experiences where they have thought that they have dealt with some sin in their life and some problem, and then, lo and behold, it rears its ugly head in our lives again, and we seem to be going through the same battles over and over again with the same sin. And that's the representation that we have here when we look at uh, Israel conquering the land, the land is symbolic also for like our spiritual life, that we have large pockets of carnality when we first get saved, and some of them are easily taken out when we become believers, and they're no longer part of our lives, and that's uh, analogous to uh, Joshua going in and taking out the uh, major uh, population centers in, in the land. He took out Jericho and Ai, and in the north he took out Hatzor. In the south he uh, took out a, a coalition of the uh, Canaanites in the south, and they also conquered Hebron and Devere. And yet, here we are 150 years later having to deal with uh, Hatzor and the Canaanites there all over again. And so this is a good time for us to just review a couple of things. And uh, one of the things that I want to do is sort of start off where I ended last time, but we'll just put ourselves into the context that in Judges there's three basic sections. The first section, that's the introduction and the overview, it shows that through compromise, incomplete obedience, that it led to spiritual failure, failure to be able to a trust in God for victory over the Canaanites as he promised. And that sets the pattern. It's the paradigm that is set up for the book of Judges. And then in the second section, it shows how they go from being a spiritually victorious nation over the Canaanites at the beginning uh, to a, the end where the judge is Samson and nothing good is said about him. And it's a gradual 
uh, deterioration. Each generation, each oppression is worse than the time before. Each time they return, as it were, as Peter puts it, as a dog to its vomit, then they just get worse than the time before. And then we get to the paganization of the priests and the people at the very end. So when, when a nation begins to reject God and to compromise with the world system around them, it destroys uh, the real uh, strength and it destroys the integrity of that nation. And from generation to generation, it just declines. And I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, several uh, weeks ago, probably a couple of months now, someone asked me, well, after looking at a lot of the things that have been going on in our country over the last, especially the last year, how in the world did we get here? And as I've been teaching through the history of Christianity in America this semester for Chafer Seminary on Monday nights, uh, I've come to realize, and I'm in a more precise way, that this all started really about the uh, end of the 1600s, early uh, 1700s, and the compromises that were made with the rationalism that came out of the Enlightenment, and that led to a, uh, uh, a really a compromise and a um, dilution of the Calvinism that they held, and I know that for various reasons, some of us don't agree with some aspects of Calvinism, but as I pointed out to my students, in the 17th century and 18th century, they were the group that stood fast for the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. They stood strong on the fact that every human being is uh, guilty of Adam's original sin, and uh, every single human being is born corrupted by sin, and they are spiritually dead. And that foundation gets uh, it, it gets decimated by rationalism, and it it leads to the rise of what was called New England theology, which gave birth to another aberration as it deteriorated through several different teachers. It came to be known as New Haven theology because the proponent of this view was a professor at Yale in New Haven. Um, in other areas, the those who just completely rejected any form of Calvinism gradually went through several stages into Unitarianism, and then the most radical form that came out of Unitarianism was the transcendentalism of Ralph Waldo Emerson and others, and that was uh, basically going leaving the whole Judeo-Christian worldview and going right into pantheism. And in all of these sy systems, what they had in common was that they reject, first of all, that uh, human beings are uh, receive the imputation of Adam's original sin or that they're born spiritually dead or enslaved to sin, which is very clear from Romans chapter 6, but they reject that. And thus every person is born uh, as Adam was created, without the guilt of sin. And therefore they theoretically could live a sinless life. That means that every human being is born basically good and not basically sinful. That's the root difference between theological and political liberalism 
and theological and political conservatism. Just read the introduction to Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Vision. That's what he goes back to, and he goes back to representatives in the late 1700s to demonstrate his thesis, which is what the whole whole book is about. And so that, that lays the difference. And that working out that presupposition that man is basically good and not basically evil is what's brought us to the point that we are. It goes through various stages. It gave birth to the war between the states because of uh, a number of different factors. I'm not oversimplifying it. But the match was really lit by the arrogance of the this merger between the Finneites uh, out of uh, out of the north, as well as the uh, transcendentalists, and they just went into hyperdrive with their arrogance. This didn't happen in England. That's the contrast. In England, uh, abolition of slavery was driven by evangelicals who believed in the depravity of man, who believed uh, that you couldn't. Um, improve and perfect society. And over here, they were driven by the idea that we can bring in a utopia apart from God. We can bring in a perfect society. We just have to get rid of these national sins. And so they just had a list of four or five or six, and that's basically the history of the country ever since. And in this, it lays the, uh, the seeds for the acceptance of socialism and Marxism and utopianism and Darwinism and Freudianism and all of the different isms that have uh, gradually penetrated and further destroyed uh, the Church of Christ. And it is just absolutely, absolutely tragic. But it's the same thing that we've seen over and over and over again in the, in the cycles in the Bible, whether you're talking the cycles that occurred during the period of the judges or the cycles of depravity that you saw in the northern kingdom as each king uh, gets his report card from God and said he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, worshipped the Baals and the Asherah and followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Every single king in the north and a lot of the kings in the south, they didn't follow in the sins of Jeroboam, but they uh, brought the idols into, uh, into the southern kingdom, and it just destroys the nation. But the hope that we have is as we see this cycle going from disobedience to divine discipline to God's gracious deliverance, they never deserved it, not once, but God always met them where they were. That's how God works in his grace and his goodness, meets them where they are and would deliver them, and then they would just return to it all over again. They would just revert back to uh, the paganism of the, of the culture around them. And so we have seen this process where they're just sliding into the uh, paganism of the judges from one judge after another, and right now we're on that third judge, uh, Deborah. Now, one of the things that we've seen in this process, just to review this a little bit, in the first king is, I mean, the first judge is Othniel. Nothing bad is said about him. The enemy that comes in from the east is Kushan Rishathaim, who's the king of Mesopotamia. That's where Babylon is located. You always have to listen to those tones, listen to those themes that often uh, reverberate in that lower base register 
when you're reading Scripture, Babylon is always represents the city of man. It's literal Babylon, but they are always the seat of opposition and will be in the tribulation. And then they are always going against Jerusalem. So we see that theme right there with the first king, Cushan Rishathaim. But the Spirit of the Lord comes on Othniel, and he delivers and God, that is, delivers Cushan Rishathaim into his hand, and then they have rest. He is then followed by Ehud. Ehud, there's no mention of the Spirit. God, When God does anything at the beginning, the Lord strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, and uh, Moab puts together an alliance with the Ammonites and the uh, Amalekites. And so you see on this map, Moab here, united with Ammon, comes across here, uh, comes across the, the Jordan at the fords of the Jordan, and they are going to defeat Israel, uh, and they are going to uh, dominate them for 18 years until God raises up a man named Ehud, a left-handed man. And I told you about how what the implication of this is he's, his, what it literally means is le- his right hand is bound so that he's forced to learn to use his left hand and become ambidextrous. That tells us that Ehud probably had some sort of military training in in his background. And I don't know if you can prove this or not, but he the, the uh, narrative is so brief that when he is, finally escapes from the palace, uh, gets away from uh, Eglon after he assassinates him, that he gets back, he goes up into the hill country of Samaria and he blows on his shofar and all the tribes gather. It's almost as if they were waiting. That We're not told, but there must have been a plan. They're ready. They know what uh, Ehud is going to do. And when he comes out and he blows the horn, they know what to do. And they come down, they immediately have a contingent that's going to block the uh, retreat of the Moabites at the fords of the Jordan. And there they, they get trapped and they defeat them. And then God is going to uh, give them uh, 18 years of, uh, of rest. And then we have Shamgar. Shamgar just comes in from uh, nowhere, one verse. I pointed out that the name is not a Hebrew name. It's probably a Hurrian name. And that doesn't mean they were in a hurry. Um, it's a group of people who would live north of Israel, up in the area of Syria, but they were known for providing mercenaries. There were a couple of other groups. Hittites also were known for providing uh, mercenary troops to kings, and that's good for the background of what we're going to see because in um, and Judges chapter 4, verse 2, when we're introduced to Sisera, his name also is probably a Hurrian or a Hittite name, and it's very likely he's a mercenary who is uh, won the trust of Yavin, the uh, king of Hazor, and so he's put in charge of, of the army. And so now we're going to come up on this uh, next uh, next situation with uh, the elevation to power of Sisera, uh, excuse me, of Yavin, who's the king of Hatzor. Hatzor is located uh, just about maybe four or five miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And if you notice on this map, these lines 
on the map represent the major travel routes. Those are the highways of the ancient world. And so you have one over here that goes along the coast. That's called the Way of the Sea. And then uh, this one was the major trunk route, and you would come from Egypt, and you would come up through uh, Jaffa, and then when you got up to about Mount Carmel, which is located right here, you get there's a pass through the uh, uh, range here, the Carmel Range, and if you would either go north along the coast up towards Tyre and on up to what is modern Turkey, or you would take the great trunk road that goes from Megiddo up to Hatzor and then to Damascus. So Hatzor uh, sat right on that, that junction there, and Megiddo also sat right down here. So they became the major fortifications later on uh, that were rebuilt by Solomon. That's where he stationed his chariot corps. So this is a much, uh, Solomon's much later than this, but this is the location uh, of, um, of Hatzor. So the insertion of Shamgar last time, I pointed out that he's a Hurrian mercenary. He was not an Israelite. He probably was not a believer. And the point that it's inserted into this text between Ehud and the episode with Deborah and Barak is to show that there, how poor the men were in Israel, that they did not, there was no one in Israel that God was going to raise up to deliver them. He just uses a pagan, and God does that. He uses all sorts of political leaders and puts them in a position uh, so that he can do what God wants him to do. And I'm always reminded of Jehu later on in the north, and God wanted him to destroy the, uh, the house of, of Ahab. And I ended last time by talking about the basic problem, and this is what I want to focus on for just a little bit as we go to go back to this and pick up a couple of, of, of themes, is that the problem that Israel had was that Israel succumbed to the temptation of assimilating to the culture around them. They didn't want to be different. And besides that, there was a lure, there was a hook in the culture that the culture promised pleasure at no cost. It promised prosperity at no cost. And it promised that there would be uh, easy solutions. And you didn't have to go through all of that stuff that God wanted you, the God of Israel wanted you to go through. You didn't have to do all of those sacrifices and you didn't have to go through all those uh, rituals throughout the year and all of those things. And they promised a sexual pleasure because that was at the center of this whole fertility uh, worship idea. And we see the same thing happening in our world today. It is uh, uh, creates attractive lures. Uh, prosperity is one of them. Materialism and providing all of the wonderful uh, conveniences and wonderful things that we have in, in our culture and society and education and promising uh, a, lot, a lot of times there are so many different programs to provide student aid, and it just lures people into the education system, which in the last 60 years has basically turned into a propaganda machine uh, for socialism and for Marxism and for a whole world system. And so parents have just trustingly sent their children off uh, to college, and there have been 
a number of books. One of the ones I'm most familiar with is a book by Ken Ham called Already Gone. And talking about the high percentage, we're talking about 85, 88% of 17 and 18-year-olds that leave home from a good, solid home. They've gone to church regularly, but I don't know what you get in most evangelical churches today. It's pretty pathetic. They're not taught much. They're not given any uh, apologetics. They're not taught how to defend their faith and why their faith is true and how to uh, deal and counter with the uh, false claims of the cosmic system. And so they go off to college, and the statistics are that within the first six to 12 weeks, they have turned completely against whatever belief system their parents had, and unless their parents were radical leftists. Uh, they have turned against them. They have rejected everything they've been taught. They've rejected the Christianity that they were taught. They've rejected the conservative uh, principles that they were taught, and they are on the way to being completely antagonistic to and hostile to. And we all know stories, and we all have friends, and many people we know, even in this congregation, that have had uh, one child or more who have completely estranged themselves uh, from their parents because they don't want to have anything to do with the Bible or Christianity and they're just out pursuing their own pleasure. And this is just exactly what happened in the ancient world. And the scriptures make it very clear that we deal with three enemies. And we're very focused on the fact of demonism and the fall of Satan, and we understand his sin nature. But too often there's not an emphasis on keeping ourselves unstained from the cosmic system, as James puts it that pure and undefiled religion, and by religion he uses it in the positive sense, biblical truth, our relationship with God, is to care for orphans and widows in their misfortune, which is grace orientation, and to keep oneself unstained or uncontaminated, not letting your thinking be infiltrated by the value system of the world around us. And as I look back over my life and watching a lot of things that have been seen on TV, uh, you can see where there was this gradualism that occurred, breaking down the value system. I had a pastor friend of mine who, uh, since television got pretty bad in the last uh, year or two, started watching a lot of older shows on television from the 60s and 70s. And he could see going back and watching these shows how they're planting the seeds uh, to, for preparation for acceptance of homosexuality, acceptance of gay marriage, uh, acceptance of various areas of sinfulness, and this is how it works. It doesn't, it doesn't, Rome didn't fall in a day. It takes a long time for the foundations uh, to erode. And what we have to be careful of is to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Of course, some people think you're just an old legalistic fuddy-duddy, but that's not the point. The point is, what does God think? And God says that there's only two ways of thinking. In James 3.15 and 3.16, there's the contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom from above. There's no other option. There's only two. And the wisdom uh, from, that does not come from above, that does not come from heaven, is described as earthly. I've translated it as soulish because the idea of sensual, which is one translation, it just is so far from uh, 
what it means, it's incredible, and demonic, which is actually a good translation. Earthly is the word epigeos. Gaia was the goddess of the earth, and that's the noun for earth in Greek. And epigeos has to do with um, something that is of the earth and something that is oriented to the earth. And I couldn't help but think of the fact that when you get into the book of Revelation, that the the enemies of God are the, referred to as the earth dwellers, the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, the people of the earth. These are the those who uh, live out the cosmic philosophies, the worldly philosophies and religions that are antagonistic to God. And then the word soulish is the word sukikos. Suke is the Greek word for for soul. We have it in the word psychology and in the word psychotic. And it has to do with those who are soulish. And it's always contrasted with those who are spiritual pneumaticos. Those who are spiritual have a relationship and a close walk with God. And so uh, the third is demonic. And this is the word daimoniodes. And it refers to that which has its source in Satan. So the earthly wisdom and the soulish wisdom, the wisdom of the world, isn't something that originates with human beings. It has its ultimate origin in Satan. And so human viewpoint is really demonic viewpoint. It's really Satan's viewpoint. It's all the same thing. It is that which is hostile to God. Uh, because And... Um, the contrast is that wisdom that doesn't come from above that is then characterized in the next verse by envy, self-seeking, self-absorption, confusion, and every evil thing. Sounds a lot like the works of the sin nature in Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 and 20. And then James 4, 4 says, uh, James calls them adulterers and adulteresses, not because they're physically, sexually immoral, but because they are unfaithful to God. And he says, do you not know? How are they unfaithful to God? Because they are friends with the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostility, antagonism with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James is saying it's one way or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground. You just can't live your life in a way where you're not upsetting either side. You're either on the devil's side living for the world or you're on God's side living for him, one or the other. And the world system is just that system of earthly thinking, earthbound thinking. The religions... Even atheism is a religion. The Supreme Court even recognized that in a decision back in 1964 that atheistic secular humanism was just as much a religion as Christianity or any other religion. If theism is a religion, then its opposite must also be a religion. And atheism is just saying no no God. Well, that's a, if saying there is a God is a religious statement, then saying there's no God must also be a religious statement. Uh, the various philosophies, the assumptions about life that everybody goes with, well, that's what everybody does, that's what my friends do, that's how those I work with, that's what they believe, that's just the thinking of the world system. 
And so all of that derives from a fallen creature, whether it's angelic, a fallen angel, or whether it is, uh, it is human. And then 1 John two fifteen and 16, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love for the Father is not in them. They're living on, as incarnality, they're living on their sin nature, and there is no fellowship with God. That's what he is saying. There's no walk by the Spirit. It's either one or the other. If you are attracted to the world, then that is making you an enemy of God. And then he says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, that is the cosmic system, the lust of the flesh, that is the lust of the sin nature, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So we have our three enemies, the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But we are to resist him, steadfast in the faith, using and applying the doctrine we've learned, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Every believer has that struggle. And then we have the sin nature. The sin nature, Genesis 4, 7, you do well. Will, will you not? Uh, God is speaking to, to Cain who's tempted. He's angry at Abel. And God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And the imagery here and the language is of a ravenous beast crouching to leap and devour. Sin is lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So the enemy within us is our sin nature. The sin nature has an affinity for the values and the beliefs and the teaching of the world system. But we are also to uh, control the sin nature. Romans six eleven says, now in this age... Uh, we can do this. We have the Holy Spirit because we have been baptized by the Spirit and, and identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, sin does not have to rule over us, is his argument in the first 10 verses of Romans 6. He says, likewise, you also consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. That word to consider yourselves is to think about it. Create a mental mindset a framework of thinking that that you have to think of yourself as dead, separated from uh, sin, but you are alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign. Don't let it rule. Don't let it control you. You're going to sin. Every one of us is going to sin, and sometimes we're going to really disappoint ourselves, but we're not supposed to give in to it and permanently lose that that struggle. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And James one fourteen and fifteen says, But let each one but he said, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. See the bait that's in the trap doesn't just reach out and grab us. You may think it does. You may feel like it does. But but we let ourselves be entrapped by it and enticed by it. Let each each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That's the attraction your sin nature has for that temptation. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
and sin, when it is full grown, uh, brings forth death. This is the problem because of that sin nature. And the sin nature uh, produces not only morality and, and a value system, but everybody has a value system. Even the antinomians in the leftist crowd, they are rejecting the law of the land. They are rejecting the Constitution. They are rejecting the laws that have been handed down in this nation that has made it a great nation in the last 200 years. But they have a different morality and a different value system, so they want to go around and cancel everything that everything that had anything to do with the history of the United States in order to de, to destroy it. So you have a, a self righteousness and a morality that that's really a moral degeneracy. And in the twistedness of sin, you see they're over here in antinomianism, and antinomianism has its own self righteousness and its own morality. And that's a good thing to talk, talk about and to bring up if you're talking to somebody who's being trapped into this is where do they get that value system? Uh, what, what's its source? So you, this is the, the, the sin nature and all of its mechanics for destroying us. So we go through our slides and then we come to, did I miss one? Uh, no. Next one is Romans 12, 1. I implore you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present. That's our responsibility is presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. It's not a one-shot decision. That's what used to happen in the big revivals, you know, call everybody forward, make your, commit your life to Christ, a one-shot deal. Well, it's not. It's every single moment, every single day, every hour, uh, all through the day, every day of the week, every week of the year. Uh, are we going to present our bodies as a living sacrifice in obedience to the Lord and serving Him or serving our own lust? Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to the spirit of this age. The spirit of this age wants to press you and form you and shape you into its mold so that you look just like it and you can just see the pressures coming in our country from the uh, tyranny of the classroom, the tyranny of the universities, the tyranny of the self-righteous leftist crowd, and the tyranny of the government in trying to press everybody into thinking the same thing. And uh, you have uh, all of the various social media that if you don't go along with the, their opinions and their ideas, then you're, you're canceled and your material is removed. The pressure is mounting to walk according to the values of the world system. But instead, we're to be transformed by the renewing of the thinking of our mind. That only comes from the Word of God. We need to be in the Word all the time. I don't mean every single second. We have to do other things. But we need to always keep our minds being washed by the water of the Word. We need to read our Bibles every day. We need to read through the Bibles. If, we, if you can't do that and you're driving, uh, download an audio Bible to your cell phone and listen to an audio Bible. I, I've gotten to where I do that a lot when I'm out walking. I just listen to uh, the audio Bible while I'm walking, and then when I can sit down, then I, I read my Bible. Uh, but we have to do that, constantly flushing uh, the garbage out of our soul through the Word of God. And that is necessary. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. It is by means of the Word that we are sanctified. 
Hebrews 12, 4 through 6, the writer of Hebrews says, Oh, so you're being tempted? It's tough. You keep yielding to it. Have you resisted to the point of bloodshed yet? Well, then don't come whining about it. You have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation, and this is a quote from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Uh, the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That divine discipline is part of your training as a child of God. It's a demonstration of his love and scourges every son whom he receives. And that's exactly what's going on in Judges. Israel was God's firstborn, and God is disciplining them according to what he revealed in the Mosaic law. And so once again, we see that after the deliverance of Ehud, they just go right back to their uh, idolatrous practices and their rebellion against God, and they do evil in the sight of the Lord. This is uh, Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And we have... uh, the children of Israel going back into all of the apostasy and all of the idolatry that they went in, uh, went in before. The thing that we, I want to point, I want to make the point in this introduction is that when we look at Christians today, the visible church, the visible church includes everybody from the Roman Catholic Church to some of the fringe groups that, that, that are the visible church. We don't know who's truly saved, who's not. Somebody, we have a lot of people that are so apostate. I read an article by a man who is just as, as washed up spiritually as he could possibly be, but he grew up in a Baptist church. He trusted Christ when he was young. He goes through his whole testimony, and he's just rejected all of it now. And that's the kind of thing that the Israelites were doing. But God still meets us. God still meets us in grace. And God still wants to conform us to the image of Christ, even if we have failed. And uh, God does two things. He uses a carrot and he uses a stick. And in a lot of ways, he puts out positive things to, that are attractive. But if we continue to be stubborn then we're going to get the stick, which is uh, Hebrews 12, 4 through 6. And we need to make sure that we are diligent. That word spudazo we've studied in both Ephesians and in Second Peter, that we need to be eager, be diligent, strive to uh, watch over our spiritual life. Um, and in order to respond to God to bring us back into fellowship with him and that is exactly what is going when we what is going on here when we get into um, this study of of uh, Deborah and Barak Uh, in Christianity today if you look around you watch what's on Christian TV and and a lot of Christian radio we are so blessed in Houston to have KHCB that most of the programming on KHCB is very solid. And it, I, I don't think it's as solid as it was 40 years ago, but I know the people who run it, and it's, it's, it's very solid. And uh, they have some good people on KHCB. 
But you look at most cities and most towns, they just don't have good stuff. And and KHCB's got some garbage on there, too. It's just the way of the world inside the church these days. We can't find anything that's that's really hasn't compromised to some degree. But contemporary Christians have allowed themselves to be pressed into the mold of the world. And we, in many cases in Christianity, they don't act any different than the pagans around them. That's exactly what was going on in Israel. Uh, they acted every day like uh, the pagans around them, like the Canaanites. And we have Christians today who act and vote and uh, entertain themselves with the same entertainment of the unbelievers. And yet we know that there's a I believe still a vast number of Christians in this country who have not bowed the knee to Baal and they have not succumbed and they still strive and they still focus on their spiritual life and they hunger and, and thirst for the truth. But the last 200 years, we've seen almost all the major denominations buy into and compromise with modernism and with mysticism and with socialism and with critical race theory to where we just wonder if there's anything left of biblical Christianity uh, in the world today. So what I want to do now is get into this opening section of Judges, and in about the 20 or so minutes that we have left, just talk a little bit about what is going on in the opening part of these these two verses. And um, I'll just read them. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. That again is getting redundant. The result, divine discipline. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Yavin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Heresheth Hagoyim. Now you read that and you read it because you are a Bible-believing Christian and you are looking at that and you say, okay, what's so controversial about that? Well, that's something we need to talk about. There's two questions we need to ask and address. One is, what is the significance of Hatzor? It's it's. I don't think this is just something random, just some town. Hotsor, as we're going to see, was a hundred. The lower city was a hundred and seventy acres. The upper city was thirty acres. I don't think the city of David in uh, uh, in Salem, the city of the Jebusites, which will be Jerusalem. I don't think the city of David was what twenty acres. 30 acres at most, not, not probably not even that large. And most of these other places that, that you and I have gone to in Israel uh, were, were not that large. So what is the significance of Hatzor? This was an enormous city uh, at its time and place. And the second question is, how many times was Hatzor destroyed and when? Now you may say, well, why is that important? Because this is where the Bible gets attacked by people who don't really believe in the Bible. And even some who say they believe in the Bible, they, because they bring their rationalistic presuppositions to the text, 
they're going to say, see, we have a contradiction here between what is said in Joshua 11 and what is said here. And actually, they're probably both talking about the same event. So uh, the, this isn't actual literal history. And with that, they put the seeds of doubt into students in high schools and in universities. And they come home and say, well, what's the difference? And parents go, I don't know, because my pastor never taught me anything. So we have to understand these things, because this is the kind of thing that liberals use in here and in other passages in the Scripture, where they try to destroy the uh, the accuracy and the authority and the inerrancy of scripture and say see it just like every other human book they're just making things up to fit their uh, you know to fit their own narrative and their own agenda and so you don't have to take it literally they're just stories to encourage us to be moral well if the stories are false and maliciously so then why would that make me want to be moral i've never understood that Now, we look at these two verses. We look at the first one, and actually the the clauses have been flipped in the English. The way it reads in the Hebrews, as I've translated it in the second example, it begins, the sons of Israel again did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. That's your emphasis. That's the first clause that is stated. And then almost as an afterthought, it adds, after Ehud died. It's very similar to what is said in Judges 3.11 and 12. Judges 3.11 ends the episode with Othniel and says, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And then the next verse says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so as we start off with this and we're looking at the significance of this, uh, we need to understand this this spiritual situation that they're now going to be under the divine discipline by an oppressive, a strong military presence, an oppressive power that uh, uh, virtually enslaves them. So the next question we need to address is, well, what do we know about Hatzor? Where is Hatzor? Why was it significant in the Bible and in the Scriptures and what's going on here? And to do that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 11. Just turning back about 10 or 15 pages probably. Joshua chapter 11. Joshua's already conquered Jericho and the walls have come tumbling down. And he's uh, conquered I eventually after an episode of disobedience to God and divine discipline. And they've had some other uh, battles and episodes, and they've gone south. And now uh, they're going into the north where they have to deal with um, a concentration of power under this king called Yabin, king of Hatzor. Well, wait a minute. I thought in Judges chapter 4, the enemy was Yabin, the king of Hatzor. And here we have a king of Hatzor. Well, maybe they're the same person. That's what the liberals try to say, is that this must be the same, same person. So they try to 
conflate the accounts and see that they're just repeating themselves in Judges and that. So uh, Judges 11 tells us, And it came to pass when Yavin of Hatzor heard these things, and that is heard about the conquests of the Israelites in the south and uh, in the center of the country. Uh, when he heard these things, he sent to a couple of his allies. He See, uh, Hatzor was a major city-state in the north. It's 200 acres in size. That's, that's really large. Now, when I grew up, I always r- relate to that because uh, when I grew up, I went to Camp Penile, and Camp Penile was about 200 acres at that time. That's a huge piece of real estate. And that's how large Hatzor was. And so all of these other uh, cities, we call them, were really city-states, and each one had a ruler. And Hatzor had dominated this whole area just north of the Sea of Galilee, and they, were, uh, they dominated. So these are his uh, vassal cities. And so he's calling upon these vassals to come together and to be part of his uh, military operation to defend themselves against the advancing Israelites. So he hears these things. He gathers his allies around them. And then when they are attacked, they're going to be destroyed by Joshua, and we'll skip the whole story. And at the end, we're told in verse 10, Joshua turned back at that time and took Hatzor and struck its king with the sword, for Hatzor was formerly the head of those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hatzor with fire. So all the, and then you skip down to verse 13. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them. The mound is the tell. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, uh, Israel burned some of them except Hatzor only, which Joshua burned. So Joshua's actually burned about three cities to the ground. And uh, here, a couple of things. I changed the translation a little bit. The, it, it, it's, it always translates, at least in the King James, it struck somebody or they struck them down. And the Hebrew word there is nacha. And what it means is it kill, they, they get killed. That's the, the short, quick translation. And so he kills its king with the sword. Well, who's in the king? Yavin. Well, wait a minute. If, if Joshua kills Yavin, what's Yavin doing 150 years later? You know, some people in the Bible lived that long, but nobody at this time was living that long. So it's got to be two different people with two different names, unless you don't believe in the numbers and the dates. Also, verse 11, they killed, they struck down all the people, means they killed, they annihilated. That was the law of the ban. We have studied that word, the haram, and that's what we have here. Uh, God is uh, waging his war in divine discipline to completely cut all of the Canaanites off of the face of the earth. So they were given orders to kill every man, woman, and child, and in most cases, all of their livestock. Uh, God was going to provide for them. They didn't need to get uh, extra resources from the pagans. So he, they're utterly destroyed. That's the word, the ban. The, 
they did exactly what God said, annihilated and destroyed everything. No one was left breathing, and he burned his hot sword to the ground. Hot sword is mentioned a couple of other times. If we go over to Joshua chapter 12, uh, there's a long list of the kings that are conquered by Joshua, and in verses uh, 7 and 8, talks about going up into the north, and it just describes that these are the kings of the country that Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side, that's the west side of the Jordan, from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon, that's up to the northwest, and down to Baal God in, uh, on the west from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak at the ascent of Seir which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession. So he conquers all of that land in the north. And verse 8, in the mountain country and in the lowlands in the Jordan plain, the Shephelah, as well as the hill country, along the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites are all, all destroyed. In 1219, he lists these allies, the king of Medan and the king of Hazor. And again, in 1936, there's another list of the cities that are conquered and destroyed. So what we see in this is that uh, this powerful city-state of, of Hatsor is... Let me back up a minute. I lost my... Okay, this powerful city-state of Hatsor is completely destroyed and annihilated by Joshua, according to... Uh, according to what goes on here. Bryant Wood, who is re- retired now, but he ha- and he has some cancer, I've heard. Some of you heard him a number of years ago. I uh, made a presentation on the location of I at the uh, Bible Museum over at uh, Houston Baptist, and that was just before he retired. He's written a lot of articles over the years, mostly in the uh, journal Bible and Spade, which is very, very conservative. And these are men who believe the Bible, they believe in inerrancy, and they use the Bible as their guidebook for finding things in Israel. And there's only one place where I possibly disagree with uh, with Bryant Wood in terms of, uh, of uh, his, his lo- location of Iod. I'm not sure if that's right or not. And so here he makes this statement. There are three sites of destruction. Devir, that's down by um, Hebron in the south. Beitin, which is the modern Arabic name for Bethel. And Tel Beit Mirsim, which uh, he ad- identifies as Debir, Beitin, which he identifies as Bethel and Lachish. All three were excavated in the 1930s. And in each case, a violent destruction layer was found which was dated to the end of the 13th century B.C. Now, for those of you who have trouble with numbers, we're talking 13th century is the 1200s. And what he's referring to is the work of John Garstang, and who was a noted archaeologist at that time. But by dating it to the 13th century, he's saying this is when these cities were conquered by Joshua. In the 1200s? Really? Well, this is the problem, is that's what's called late dating the Exodus. It didn't occur, as we believe, in 1446. It 
And that's because you don't take the numbers in the Bible literally. So you're already questioning what the Bible says. And so these archaeologists, and this is almost all of them, unless they're the few that you've heard me talk about. Um, and so he's, he's saying that this was Garstang's view, and this has shaped a lot of modern archaeology. Garstang dug back in the 30s. So... Uh, that's Bryant Wood introduces us to this second problem, which is to find out why hot sore is important. We have to put it in the right time period. And so you have the uh, answer to the question, when did the exodus occur? The late date is the liberal view. It's 13th century. That is the 1200s. But the problem is scriptural. First Kings 6.1 says, and it came to pass in the 480th year. How many years is that? 480. 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, so that's in April, that he began to build the house of the Lord. That's the temple. So we can pretty much date the beginning of Solomon's reign for reasons I'm not going to go into. But we have another passage we'll come to later in the Judges at the time of Jephthah, where Jephthah is negotiating with the head of the Ammonites. And in his negotiation, he's talking about their past history. And he says, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages and Aurora and its villages and all the cities along the bank of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Because the Ammonites are saying, oh, you've got our land, we want it, we, we want it back. And the point is that, that most scholars date Jephthah, we can't tell for sure in the book of the Judges, somewhere between 1130 and 1075. Okay, that's a 55-year uh, period. And so if you add 300 years to that, uh, you're in the ba- basic period of around 1375 to uh, about 1410 uh, or 1420, 1430, somewhere in there. So right around 1400, as because he, he's just talking in approximate numbers here. So that would mean, according to Jephthah, that the entry into the land was somewhere around 1400. Well, Conservatives believe the Exodus was in 1446 B.C. because uh, when you look at, add the numbers together, which uh, uh, I'll do later and add um, 480 to um, the date of Solomon's uh, building of the temple, which is 966, then you come up with 1446 B.C. for the date of the Exodus. And 40 years later, 1406 is when they would go into uh, the land, 1405 or 1406. And so here you have a confirmation of that same time frame from Judges 1126. Uh, Bryant Wood says about this that in addition, Judges 1126 argues for a 15th century exodus and conquest. In this passage, Jephthah stated in a letter to the king of Ammon, for 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aurora, etc. But his point is that I'm quoting is that this would have been between 1130 and 1073. So here's a timeline. Start with 1500 BC. That's before the Exodus. 
The Exodus, we believe the conservative view, occurred in 1446 B.C. 1400 B.C. is, uh, they're already into the conquest. 1405 is when they crossed the Jordan to begin the conquest. Then we have 1300 B.C., and the liberal view is that the Exodus occurred somewhere around 1370 during the reign of Ramses II. That's Yul Brynner for those of you who've seen the Ten Commandments. See, they took the late date. They didn't take the early date, which is the conservative view. And uh, Solomon dedicates the temple in 966. That's his fourth year, so you can do the math and you come back and you add 966 and 480, and you come out with, four, uh, I mistyped that, 14, it should be 1446 B.C. So th- that's important because when you then get into Hatsor and look at, the, uh, look at the excavations around Hatsor, uh, there's a burn area. But because the liberals have put uh, the Exodus in the 13th century. They're going to say that's when Hatsor was there, and they only see one destruction. They don't see a destruction back in 1466. Now, the the destruction around uh, the 13th century, that's probably the the second destruction, which is Deborah and and, uh, uh, Barak. A guy named Doug Petrovich, in an article he wrote on dating hot source destruction, and Doug will be teaching in two weeks, he said, ancient hot sore consisted of a large rectangular lower city of 170 acres and a bottle-shaped upper city, 30 acres, essentially an elongated mound called a tell. A tell is where one, one layer of civilization uh, and it's wiped out or disappears, and then they build on that location again and again. And basically, it's like a multi-layer cake. And what archaeologists will do is they'll cut a piece of the cake out and look and examine those those different layers. And so he says uh, th- this was a huge site, and Yigael Yadin, who is one of the premier Israeli archaeologists, um, excavated Hatsor in the 50s and again in the late 60s and documented that there was a great conflagration that accompanied the total destruction of this uh, final late Bronze Age city, which he believed to have occurred around 1233. And then he's, that's Joshua, okay? Now here's what, Hats- what Hatsor looks like from the air. You ha- you're going to have the upper city on the left and the lower city uh, are the flattened areas that are highlighted here. So that's the size of Hatsor. Here is a second uh, aerial view looking from the east toward the west. And you see this is the area. In fact, I uh, had a group in 2007, and we went there and we walked mostly around this area. I think we parked our cars uh, somewhere down in here and then walked up this way or we parked the bus down there and walked up this way and walked around up, up here in the, the upper city. This is a, uh, another aerial view from, from this one from the southwest. So this is all the upper city here. And then down below, all of these areas were also part of, of the city. And this is part of the excavation area. 
So um, Bryant Wood comes along and, citing Judges 4.24, argues that the Israelites destroyed the Hatzor of this era, that's late Bronze Age, under the leadership of Deborah and Barak. The problem is Judges 4 doesn't say that the city was destroyed. How do we answer that? Well, in Judges 4.24, it says, And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Yavin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed, that's that same word, nakah, killed Yavin, king of Canaan. So that's pretty clear. And, and, and if you look at what is said throughout these, um, these different accounts in Joshua, when you killed the king, you took all of his territory. You took control. Um, Petrovich, talking about this guy, Hoffmeyer wants to late date everything, and uh, he doesn't really believe the Bible at all. And so Doug says, Hoffmeyer fails to recognize the main issue in the conquest narratives of Joshua and Judges, the defeat of the cities, the extermination of peoples, and the acquisition of land. The king's death indubitably is logically connected to the conquest and to the subsequent destruction of Hatzor. In Judges 11.10, that's exactly what we have. Joshua killed the king with the sword, and in verse 11, and they killed all the people, utterly destroying them. In Joshua 12.1 says, These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possess. So the problem is that most archaeologists accept the historicity of the biblical account to a point, and they link all these together as one basic event. And this was uh, started by Yadin and uh, just one Israelite destruction by fire, and so this whole story is made up about Deborah and Barak. A biblical chronologist. Now, there's a couple of guys, Roger Young and another guy named Andrew Steinman, have written a lot of articles in the Journal for the Evangelical Theological Society. Steinman came out with an excellent chronology book called From Abraham to Paul. And he revises some dates positively on the basis of biblical evidence. Chronology is just a sticky wicket in the Bible. There's a lot go, that goes on there. But Roger Young uh, makes a statement that 1446 is the correct year of the Exodus, and as and this is Petrovich writing, and as the present writer demonstrated, I just threw this in there because you'd like to know this, uh, Petrovich says the Exodus can be dated even more precisely to 25 April 1446 B.C., Thus, the conquest of the Promised Land began in 1406 B.C., 40 years after the Exodus. How can he date it to the day? Passover. Remember, they had Passover right before they they're kicked out. So that's all solved. So the solution, the difference between the conquest in Joshua 11 and Judges 4 is approximately 150 years, probably closer to 166, but I'm just going to... The numbers get fuzzy in Judges. You just add up the numbers. You have to, Joshua dies. You have to wait for the elders of his generation to die. And then there's um, the uh, eight years of the first oppression, 40 years of rest, 18 years for the second oppression, and then 80 years of rest. 
and then 20 years of oppression under Yavin, and that ends up with 166. So that puts it pretty much in a time period of about of the mid-1200s. Second, Yavin is a dynastic name. It's not a personal name. We see that with a lot of these guys like Kushan Rishathayim and uh, several others, uh, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, uh, Adonai Zedek, uh, the lord of righteousness. These were just titles for their position. But in the Mari archives, they discovered a mention of a Yavni, a dad, as the king of Hatzor in 18th century B.C., uh, Hatzor. And so that is evidence that this is a historical title for the ruler of Hatzor. It's also, they find uh, the mention of a Yavin Adu, king of Hatzor, in an, another uh, document that's from the 18th to the 17th centuries B.C. So the conclusion is that Hatzor was destroyed twice, once at the time of Joshua and again later in the mid-13th century, which would be the time of Deborah and Barak. It's mentioned in later verses as uh, confirmation in 1 Samuel 12, 9. Uh, when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatzor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Psalm 83, 9. Uh, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Yavin at the brook Kishon. And Yavin wasn't there, but he is the king. It's his army. They're destroyed by the flood of the Kishon, as we'll see. So that brings us to verse 2. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Yavin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatsor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in a place called we don't know exactly where it was, Harashith Agoyim. Sisera is another Canaanite name. He's probably a Hittite or Hurrian mercenary like Shamgar. And where he was from, Harashith Agoyim is down here. This is the uh, Esdralon Valley. Uh, Megiddo is right here in the foreground. So this is the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, way off off the picture to the left would be the port at Haifa. Over here you have Mount Tavor. Over here you have Mount Gilboa. And just over this ridge here you have Nazareth. That's what's great about going to Israel is you just get to see where half the, bi- the events in the Bible took place when you stand in a location like this. And with these new projectors you can really see it. Isn't that great? So... It's got to be a somewhat flat area, too, because they've got chariots. You can't run chariots over mountains and ridges and rocky ground. So that sets the stage for getting us into uh, the episode with Deborah and Barak in this chapter. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to be challenged, to keep ourselves unstained from the world, and, Father, also to... Uh, Give us confirmation that your word is true, that archaeology doesn't prove it, but it confirms it. And, Father, we need to have those evidences because there are so many who seek to attack those who are weak and those who easily uh, give up the faith. But we know that there is solid evidence that demonstrates the accuracy of your word. We pray for each of us in our spiritual life that we might press on and be steadfast in the faith 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.